power of obedience. The power of obedience. You know, everything about Jonah's story just describes to us the importance of obedience, no matter how you look at it. No matter how you look at it. Let me write something here real quick. Go ahead and turn to your Bibles, to Jonah chapter 3. You probably guessed it by now, but it looks like Pastor's going to lead us through the old, all of Jonah. So that's probably true. <laughs> Unless the Lord turns it around somehow, but this is where I feel like he's been leading. Jonah chapter 3. <clears throat> Lord willing, we'll cover this chapter today. Amen. Uh, Jonah chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 1 and 2 right in the moment. The power of obedience. The power of obedience. Jesus. I'm really encouraged right now. Some of you know how important that is to me in the moment. Um, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach to it the message that I tell you. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, that here, not modeled to perfection, but modeled, nevertheless, the importance of obedience. Father, we can all receive from this this morning. All of us know somewhere down, whether we've escaped it, Father, we've been running another direction. Lord, some of us may feel like we're on the, we're on the running's path to Tarshish. Some of us, Lord, feel like you've just spit us out of the belly of a well. And others of us, Lord, feel like we're renewed in the calling of God. We feel that sense, that renewal, that I am called by God. My individual life has been set apart for Him regardless of anybody else. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Lord, every one of us need this today. Lord, we need to hear You speak to us. Lord, highlight and, and inspire the obedience to Jesus Christ. No one more worthy. No one more satisfactory. Lord, not for the reward that we get, but for the glory that You get. We want to learn to be truly obedient to You, Father. So Lord, anything that's in the way this morning in our lives, whatever's in the way of our obedience, God, if it's the hearing side of it or it's the willing side of it, or God, it's just the doing, whatever it is, Jesus, satisfy us individually and together what it means to You. We love You, Jesus, and thank You. Thank you, Lord, for what you've already done this morning. Animate your word to our hearts. Amen. What an honor. What an honor. So the first thing I noticed here as I was reading this first, first two verses is that Jonah got a second try. He got a second attempt here. Now, <laughs> I think God has given us, many of us, far more than just a second try. We've had lots of things that we, we messed up on here. But I want you to be careful that you don't redefine the grace of God as mess-up grace. And what I mean by that is, is that you can mess up all you want, and you're just going to keep on messing up. At some point, we realize, and we look at Jonah's life, and we saw a different picture the second time around. God prepared Jonah to not mess up. God was getting Jonah to a certain place. 
And you know, the thing that I, I realize as I read through this entire book, and I've been reading through each verse carefully, and I've been looking through each chapter very carefully, but I think the hang-up that we get off is when we read in chapter 4 where he's angry at God for sparing the Ninevite people. It's like we want to keep going there and we want to get Jonah saved from being angry at the idea or want, Jonah, just get to the place where you desire the mercy of God. But I want you to capture something. That his obedience won where he had no optimism in his heart. He just had to obey. He didn't have to agree. He just had to obey. Some of us struggle along the path of life because God wants us to do something and you don't feel like you're in agreement with God. Nevertheless, when you step into an attitude and walk in obedience, you don't have to have a mood stabilizer to do what God called you to do. You don't have to feel like it's glorious. It doesn't have to feel wonderful. The outcome of it may not be what you wanted when it's all said and done. But you obey God in the end. And I think that's what the whole thing about Jonah is. Is God saying for the world is struggling with its emotional state, with its competency, with its, the way it feels about me and about what I want, here's obedience. Here's obedience. So he gets a second try. He gets a second one. And it's not like the first one, is it? It's not like the first one. See, this one, Jonah had just come out of the sea. He came out of the fish. Now he's on the path of obedience, or at least God's calling him there. God's given him another opportunity. I wonder if God would have given him another chance if he was going to go back to Tarshish or run somewhere else. See, sometimes... I think that's the way people look at it. I get a second try so that I can go do my own will again. I get to go do what I want to do one more time. And then the third time and a fourth time. When are you just going to quit? And you're just going to do it God's way. Just let the Lord have His way in your life. Some of us sometimes our area of prayer, and I remember this in many times in my own life, God, would you do this? And God begins to reveal His will, or He begins to correct the attitude in my heart. And I remember one of them was, it was just one of those things in my life, I was really wanting God to do something. I'm not going to tell you what it is. I'll leave that as a mystery for you. But I remember wanting, and I'm leaving it a mystery because I want you to put whatever it is in your life in that picture. Lord, I need this. I want this. God, why not this? And felt like the Holy Spirit started to show me the issue isn't whether I'm willing to do that or not, but the attitude that you have. And mine was, I want you to do this, then I'll submit. Rather than, Lord, I'll submit to you whether you do it or not. Because you have the perfect will in mind. And then watch Him do the miracle that I was asking for. And what I realized was, this thing, I didn't get it until I learned to surrender. You ask, you ask, but the surrender piece is as much as the asking. As much as asking. I'm glad I've got somebody in the back row that's already given me baby amens. God prepared Jonah for the second chance. I think otherwise he wouldn't have given it. In other words, he would have continued to prepare him until he was ready. 
Some of us are in preparation until we're ready. Lord, I'm ready to do what you want me to do. I'm sorry for running my own direction. All we like sheep have gone astray, but the Lord has laid on him the inequity of us all. Some people keep running back to disobedience because the the idea of second chance grace cools their conviction to be faithful. Because for them, it's third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth. They thrive on being under conviction constantly, and they learn to be obedient by compulsion. Never an act of free will. Second chance doesn't lead them to obedience, but back to rebellion so that good can come from the slavery of fear. I am under the compulsion of. And so sometimes you realize that when you read the Word of God, some people are stuck in the conviction of God's Word. They stay in the conviction area, and every time they get reconvicted, and they fall short. When they sense grace and I get another opportunity, I fall short again because they feel more prepared to obey God out of fear. And sometimes I wonder if what we're doing is, in this sense, is that's the way I grew up. That's the way I used to live my life. I remember my dad. My dad would always do things that would create a fear inside of me, and I obeyed my dad because I feared him. I feared him. I was afraid of what would happen if I didn't do what he told me. And some people are stuck there. Some people are stuck serving God like they did dad. If your dad or your mom taught you to obey by fear, just dump all of that right now, put it at the foot of the cross, come back under the blood, and find that Jesus taught us to serve him, to obey him out of love. We're not called out of compulsion. We don't have to do this because we have to do it. We get to do it because God is good. And He loves us. And you know, here's the thing. We've, what we get to see is when I've fallen and I've messed up, God has picked me up not to let me fall again. He's picked me up so that He can carry me forward. And He's the one that loved me. And that's the reason why we don't do this out of a compulsion fear kind of thing. Because the last time I did what was wrong... My dad used to beat me, yell at me, or treat me ill, but God didn't do any of those things. He didn't do any of those things. But we keep running back to the prophets, like, now you're back into an attitude of disobedience and rebellion, and then we're looking at all the judgment scriptures that we deserve because I failed. And yes, we do deserve them, but that's not how God restores us. God restores us to free Committed obedience out of love for Jesus. Jesus said it this way. He said, if you love me, keep my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. Love-born obedience is the best kind of obedience there ever will be. Jesus didn't want it any other way. He wanted love-born obedience. And so his disciples went through testing. They went through hardship. Imagine Peter. Peter's the one that was bragging, Lord, I will go with you to the death. I promise like, I'm not going to abandon you. And Peter, the, even though he had it, I'm sure he had it in his mind. I'm sure in his mind and his intention he was going to do that. But he failed on a human level to follow through. And here he is three times, just like Jesus said. Jesus said, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows. And, and Peter had done it three times, boldly, three times. And then and the last time, it said that Jesus was looking at him 
And then Peter saw Jesus. He saw His eyes. And he knew what he had done. And it said he went and, he went and wept bitterly. He wasn't, that wasn't his plan. That wasn't what he wanted to do. And then Jesus captures him later on in another moment. And he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, you know I love you. But Peter had had a change. Something had changed in him. And he'd realized Peter couldn't rely, re rely on Peter. If you'll turn me down just a little bit, please. Peter couldn't rely on Peter. And he'd come now to this new point with Jesus. And now he was looking at Jesus differently. And then Jesus says to him again, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, Lord, you know I love you. But Jesus had to do one more time. Peter, do you love me? And Peter was grieved that Jesus asked him a third time. It was almost like, Lord, are you seeing something that I'm not? I'd already once betrayed you three times. I'm vulnerable to the fact that I know my weaknesses. But this is the Jesus that loved me despite me. Despite me. How wretched, worthless, how, how easily I am drawn to my own ruin and the ruin of others. And yet He loved me. Lord, You know I love You. Because You didn't compel me to obey You out of fear. Think of the, the woman caught in the, caught in the act of adultery. And in Old Testament law, she was to be stoned for such an act. And there they were. They found her. They drew her out. And this was not about her. This was about Jesus. But they were going to make her a public example. And they bring her out in front of them all. And they said, okay, Lord, so what do you say? This is what the divine Word of God, the message that God gave us, that's what He tells us to do. What are you going to tell us? Are you going to tell us to do something besides what it says in the law? And I love the power of Jesus' love. The power of Jesus' patience. The power of Jesus' forgiveness. And He looks at the audience of all of them and He says to them, you that are without sin, cast the first stone. He didn't abuse the law. He didn't abuse the Word of God. He looked at them and He knew that they couldn't live up to it. None of them had. They'd failed. They're all failures as that were. Don't put the test of Jesus. Don't put Jesus' love to the test. You'll find out how brutal it can be. And then, one by one, they all left His presence. And then Jesus looked at her and He said, Who's condemned you? She said, No man, Lord. Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Talk about a second chance, right? What is the thing that compelled her to go and sin no more? It was the birth of the how real the love of God was to her. How fresh and personal it was that she should know that love. And so we should know that love for ourselves because that's divine love. That's perfect love that casts out all fear. See, that's what drew me out of my childhood darkness. That's what drew me into Christianity. It wasn't because the church was perfect. It wasn't because everybody that I saw were Christians were faithful to God in every way. I saw a lot of unfaithfulness sit behind the pews. But it didn't matter because I found the faithfulness of God given to me in person. And I found how powerful Jesus could restore my heart and it didn't matter what I saw. That's why I love my church. I love my church. Because there can be flaws and imperfections. There can be failures. I mean, most of us haven't done half of as bad as Jonah did. 
some things you can do to grieve me and other things you're going to do to grieve one another. But that's not what I look at. I look at the cross. I see my Savior. I see Jesus loving somebody who had a mass of failures and I'm bound to go back to them if He doesn't keep me from them. Right? Only He can keep me. Okay, so I want you to go to uh, Jonah chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. So, don't you love that God gives you another chance? Don't you love that He gives you another chance? Don't you love that not only does He give you another chance, but He does something to help you make it through this time? You know, Jesus isn't sitting on the sidelines waiting for you to mess up again. He isn't. But, and, and if we do, it was because all along Jesus was knocking at the door and we just weren't opening the door. But the moment you open that door, you find that what he does this time around is give you what you need. See, Jonah didn't have, he didn't know what it was like to be in the midst of a sea, drowning in the middle of it and taken down. He didn't know that prior to. He didn't know what it was like to be in the belly of the fish prior to the second. But God prepared each one of those specifically tailored to Jonah. Because Jonah wasn't going to get it until he came out of the fish. He wasn't going to, he had to be vomit before he actually could be the obedient. And I think that's one thing we have to think about. God knows, he tailors what he does in your life. It's not necessarily favorable or enjoyable. It can be very difficult and hard, but when you recognize the hand of God is behind the scenes of my life, man, he's going to do some things. And what's he doing? The whole time he's just lining you up for obedience. Lining you up for obedience. Okay, so three and four. So Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. He did it. This time, no delay. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three-day journey in extent. And Jonah began to enter the city on the first day's walk. And he cried out and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. So I'm not going to put something in the Bible that it doesn't say. It doesn't say that he told them if they repented. Maybe he did, but it doesn't tell us that. If they repented, they would be saved. It doesn't tell them that God even had a plan of mercy. And knowing Jonah, if he, at this point he would have said it, but it doesn't say he did. It just tells us that he told them that in 40 days, if, in 40 days that, that Nineveh would be overthrown. Just judgment. Pure judgment was what he was. all we get out of that. Jonah was preaching destruction, hoping for destruction. He was preaching destruction, but this time, what was he doing differently? This time, he was where God wanted him, and he was doing what God wanted him to do, even though he was hoping for misery on the people. The key to the Christian life is obedience, not optimism. The key to the Christian life is obedience, not optimism. I meet a lot of optimistic Christians and a lot of optimistic people. And what I find is this, is what they're trying to say is, I'm trying to make the best of a dark world. I'm trying to make the best of a bad situation. And to us, what we've done is replace faith in Jesus Christ for optimism for good results. I can't promise you that Jesus is going to say this is going to turn out well. As a matter of fact, when you read through this story, 
If the people had not repented, they would have perished. God's judgment was just and true. They were deserving of that judgment. They didn't act, God wasn't just doing some threatening to get them to feel bad and then trying to, in fear, get them to turn. They were in a position to fail. But they had repented. They had gotten right with God. But this could have just as been an act of justice as it could have been mercy. Now I want you to think about that. As we think about this, God can act in mercy and He can act in justice. And guess what? Either way would be perfect. God can do it perfectly in either sense. What God is doing is is making the decision based on those divine attributes, perfect virtues. Justice is a perfect virtue. Doing what's right is a perfect virtue. Having mercy is a perfect virtue. And blending the two of them together without there being a compromise to either one. That's what God can do. So sometimes we're trying to preach, there's going to be mercy, there's going to be mercy. But if you read throughout the Bible, there was times God says, no mercy is coming. No mercy is coming. Mercy was down the road. You missed the mercy moment for you. And He tells them judgment is coming. Now, for some, if they, they had turned, but when they didn't turn, judgment came, didn't it? Judgment day came. Jonah was preaching destruction, hoping for destruction. The key to the Christian life is obedience, not optimism. Sometimes I wonder if somebody is so optimistic that they won't listen to God. They're so optimistic. I believe that that's the way God speaks. He only speaks in words of optimism. But read through Jeremiah. Read through the prophets. And you'll find that many times God didn't say anything optimistic. He didn't say. He gave Jonah a message of judgment. What the people did with that was their own business. But that was the thing that they needed to know. Not optimism. Now, am I telling my my brothers and sisters, let's throw away optimism and go to pessimism? Is that the message today? It's not at all. But what I'm saying is, there's a third thing that we don't consider, and that is listen to God. Listen to God in the midst of this. Because there's a voice of optimism missing the will and what God is saying. And there's a voice of pessimism missing what God is saying. Lord, hone me in and let me hear what you're saying to me. And when you listen to God, it may make you optimistic. At times, you may feel pessimistic after you've heard something from the Lord, but you'll know what God is saying. Some people are so used to being one or the other. Some people are so pessimistic that they make me crazy. They can always find something bad. The best thing, in the, like here it is, you just won a hundred bucks or a thousand dollars come your way for free for nothing. And they can find a way to turn it into something bad. There's always, there's, and there seems to be the world we live in. And it's hard to find optimism. And I'm not preaching against it. But I'm telling you, it's not the thing in itself. Because when you look at the story of Jonah, there wasn't a shred of it in his life. There wasn't even the least bit of it. And yet, look what happens in Nineveh. Look what happens. Jonah didn't end up in the storm because he lacked optimism. He didn't end up in the belly of the fish because he lacked optimism. He ended up in both of those because he lacked obedience. Because he wasn't obedient. Keep in mind there was no determined outcome. In other words, Jonah's wish could have come true. So the people of Nineveh believed God. Let's look in verses 5 and 6. This is awesome. 
I love this. He went in. He went three days from one end of the city to the next, and he preached. Now, they had 40 days to get things right, 40 days to get it right. And so he went in, and he preached all the way from one end to the next, and he preached to them. And now the people of Nineveh are responding. And they didn't rebel. They believed God. They believed God at what was they were hearing. And I think that's fascinating because as far as I know, all he did was preach judgment. All he did was preach a hard word. All he did was say something. But God fills the gaps. And I think this is the thing. If we don't get a sound warning sometimes, if we don't get a sober revelation of where we're at and what's going on with our life, we don't need to look for hope before we get to the place where we believe in the sober, sobriety of what is being said. Oh God, I'm in a bad place right now. You need to receive that right now. That's the only thing you need to capture. Because some people are so ready for the redemption story that they're missing. They're missing what it means to be sobered by God. So the people of Nineveh believed God, proclaimed a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. Then the word came to the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. Now that was kind of Old Testament, we're just going to humble ourselves. Why didn't, they, why didn't it just say they believed God and did nothing? They had faith, they believed what God said. Now that we believe what God said, we ask for forgiveness real quick and it's over with. And I'll tell you why. Because the heart has to have an expression of how painful it is to have spent so much time rebelling against God. I have to have a release point. I have to let go. I need to have some sorrow. I need to have tears right now. I need this for my release and my health at receiving the love of God and His grandness. It's not coming as if we have to give more penance to God. God receives it in the moment the heart really is truly committed to Him. But us, we need a deeper release as we're surrendering and yielding to God. That's why some people, when they come to a place of repentance, they are at the altar in tears for hours. Maybe days and weeks feel like there's a grief that has overcome them because for the first time, they're witnesses that I've been an enemy of God and I looked at myself as a good man or a good woman. And that's just the grief finally being released through the life. And it's beautiful when you see the power of true repentance. So here's a whole community recognizing out of at least 120,000, perhaps even 600,000 people, that they're recognizing all the evil that they have committed as a community of people. And they're grievously broken by it. They have 40 days to get this right before God. And I love pure repentance. Pure repentance feels like love is washing over my heart while the grief of what I've done is washing out. The love is washing my heart while the grief of what I've done is washing out. That way when I'm done, when, I, when I've gotten up off of the altar or I've spent my time before the Lord, I feel like a new man. I feel like something has changed inside of me and I'll never go back. I'll never go back. It's kind of like I don't need a second turn on this one, Lord, because what you did was perfectly purifying to my heart. So when Jonah preached this message, somehow the Spirit of God was backing that message and getting to them the sense 
that they needed to get right with God. The people of Nineveh had no promise of mercy, had just a proclamation of judgment. How in the world was Jonah so persuasive? How had he been so persuasive? He had no mercy and he preached no mercy. How could he be so persuasive? That got me. I was like, you know, here you have the prophets and they would preach. If you will repent, things will be right. Jonah, it was like that's missing from his message. He didn't want to see it. And I want, to, I want you to hear something from me. I want you to hear this. He didn't preach with mercy. He didn't have any mercy. But God saved the whole community of people because Jonah was simply obedient. That's it. He was simply obedient. Man, I don't necessarily have to feel like I love that person. I just need to go tell them what you told me to tell them, Lord. Think of what Jesus said. He said, love your enemies. Do good to those that despitefully use you and persecute you. Don't you think that's going to come with pain? Isn't that going to be hard? But Jesus relishes it because he knows that despite the emotional, the emotion you feel, the anger you feel, even the feelings of hatred, that you chose obedience over God above all of that. Over yourself, over the part of you that says not on your life, no way, I'm not doing this. And you say, yes, Lord, I'll obey you because I love you more than even the way I feel in the moment. And God honors that obedience. Oh, man, do we need to hear that right now. She's a doll. (laughs) She's such a sweetheart. You need to hear that because some of us are struggling. We're not obeying God because we don't feel feelings consistent with obedience. I don't feel like doing this. It's hurting me to try to do it, Lord. But you're going to do it anyway, and God's going to bless you simply because you obeyed. And isn't that powerful? Because you don't have to line your emotions up with obedience. You don't have to get the right kind of feeling before you do what God wants you to do. You don't have to be in the right state of situation in life in order to do it. You just do what God wants you to do and you feel the blessing of God's Spirit upon that. And it's amazing because even after this, as you look at what God does to minister to Jonah, He ministers to him. And the book ends, the book ends not saying Jonah got mercy, Jonah felt differently about the people, but Jonah saw the city. God saw the city saved just like He wanted. Isn't that powerful? I want to pray one day, God, you would use me. I don't. I got up to preach the sermon. I gave a sermon that everybody was uncomfortable with because it was nothing but no good. Judgment, judgment, judgment. I didn't feel happy with anybody. I was so miserable. And that day God exploded in His glory because I just did what He told me to do. Now I'm not saying that's the way it customarily happens. But I am saying that if that's the case, God will honor the obedience. And I was thinking about this. At Pentecost, how many souls? How many souls at Pentecost? How many souls came to the Lord? 3,000 souls, right? How many in Nineveh? That's a, pretty, that's, a, that's a mighty revival right there. That's a mighty revival. That's awesome. The Holy Spirit comes down breaks down the people's hearts just like in Peter's day. 
breaks their hearts, they come to a place of repentance, and they surrender to the Lord. God was commanding, Jonah was obeying, and the people were believing. That's, that's the power of this right here. God was commanding, Jonah was obeying, the people were believing. Obedience to God is the trump card to a pessimistic heart. In other words, obedience doesn't need a mood stabilizer to be in order to be valid. It doesn't need it. It can just be all on its own. I want you to turn to verses 7 through 9. I can hear some oohs and ahs out there, so I know that this is catching you. And he caused it to be proclaimed and published throughout Nineveh by the decree of the king and his nobles, saying, Let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and cry mightily to God. Yes, let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who can tell if God will turn and relent and turn away from his fierce anger so that he that we may not perish. Notice what they say. Who can tell? We don't know if God's going to be merciful to us. He doesn't give it. We don't have a certainty or a, a special promise that we know for sure if we just do this or we have the right flavor. And why? Because repentance is raw. Some people put on the act, man. They know they're in trouble, and so they learn how to put on the act, and it's still not genuine. But God is waiting for the genuine thing to happen before he makes the next call. And the next call is almost as sure as the air you breathe. But he's waiting for the first thing to happen. The guarantee isn't to somebody who can learn to play the right role with God. The guarantee is the person who actually plays the right role at heart. God looks on the heart, not the outward appearance. Somehow the people of Nineveh sensed that God had a weak spot for sincere repentance. In all of this, and everything that was said, it might be that God, this one who's proclaiming this judgment over us, might just change the way that he's doing things. They sensed that God had a weak spot for sincere repentance. Like God says, oh, that changed the way that I'm going to do things. You know, I want you to realize, God didn't just change his mind. God wanted to do this the whole time but he had to set the groundwork for it to be done well and done right. Repentance is a release that a convicted heart gets when the hope of mercy stands in the place of deserved justice. I want to say that one more time. Repentance is the release that a convicted heart gets when the hope of mercy stands in the place of deserved justice. It's the place you want to go. You absolutely want to go there. You cherish the opportunity to get before God and confess your sins, to get things right before the Lord. You're, you're so grateful that you get to confess your sins. And you know that as you're confessing your sins, if God were to give you justice, you'd be like, that's okay with me. That's okay with me because He's a, he's a just God. And that's within His nature and the boundaries of His nature. But you know when you're repenting, God has given me an opening up the way of mercy for me. He's opening up a way of mercy for me. And as Christians, we get that every day of our life. Oh man, what did I say? What did I do? I love that uh, Julia shared earlier with us at how with her grandson. 
something that was amiss. And she goes to him in tears. That was the heart's release of, I'm really feeling the anguish of what I've done. And I'm grateful that you would forgive me and give me another chance. And that's on a human level. How much more wonderful on a level that's divine and holy, God's perfection. He doesn't, he doesn't go through this thing of, oh, I'm sorry, I don't forgive you because I don't feel like it today. That's not, the, that's not how God works. If, if it's in the order of, I can't but forgive you if it's within my nature. I cannot abuse my nature. There's no, one moment. Think about this. I've said this before, but I'm going to say it now. The moment God does one thing, one thing that lacks perfect integrity, that's the moment that He ceases to be God. He cannot do but what's perfect. Now, when you look at this, I want you to think about this. God did both exactly together. He didn't jump over and throw away justice and step in and just give mercy. He did what was just and He did what was merciful at the exact same time. As I got to thinking about this and I was realizing, God said it would not be merciful and it would not be just to offer another chance to the people of Nineveh if they repent sincerely. If they turn their whole heart to Me and they give and they get right with Me, this wouldn't be just for Me to destroy them. And it wouldn't be merciful for me to do this either. And God was perfectly in harmony with both of them at the same time. And He matched it. And everything that He was doing was preparing the people just like He prepared uh, Jonah for this time to happen. Isn't that remarkable as we think about that? My own salvation in the workings and the hand workings of God as I remember driving down the road with my dad as he was driving in, as, as a drunk man. And I remember so many times veering into traffic and veering to the edge of the road. And I remember thinking after I got saved, that was the hand of God sparing my life. There was justice and mercy for it. God was like, I can't just give him death yet. This isn't the time. He deserves it. But it wouldn't be just for me to give him death, give him death without an opportunity to know and hear more about my son, Jesus Christ, to save him. And I remember, finally, I'd been in church for a long time. I'd heard the gospel so many times. But finally, a man, this time it was like God highlighted him. He was my Jonah. And he said a few things to me. And it was just like, it was convicted me. Convicted me on the spot. I went home. I repented. I started turning to the Lord. And my life became renewed constantly. Constantly renewed by this new affection. And I remember feeling a whole new heart for God. And now I look at it and it's like, God, you were just and merciful. You didn't just, you could have sent me, you could have sent me to death, but you didn't. Because it's not just just to send a person to death. Not ultimately. It was the king, not Jonah. It was the king, not Jonah, that was giving possibility, not the promise of mercy. Notice Jonah wasn't saying that as far as we know. God finds a way to get you what you need even when others don't. This is the secret of putting your focus on God. They put their focus on God. They didn't put it on Jonah. They didn't put it on the fear of condemnation. They put it on God. And God gave them everything they needed. They knew that if they turned to the Lord, that would be their next step. And God blessed them for it. I love this. Verse 10. Soak this in. Soak this in. It says, and God saw their works. God saw their works. 
See, he saw what they were doing before, but this is, a, this is the same kind of God seeing, but he sees the works that are fitted for the salvation. And they turned from their evil way, and God relented from the disaster that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. God saw. Isn't that wonderful? God saw. Some people are in absolute grief in their life because they don't feel like God sees. God doesn't know what I'm going through. God doesn't know where I'm at. God doesn't know. Yes, He does. Yes, He sees. God saw their works. And this is what I think it was. God says, I cannot act justly and mercifully within my nature to perfection unless you come to repentance. But the moment you come to repentance, I cannot act justly and I can't act within mercy in the perfect of my nature without relenting from the disaster that I was going to bring upon you. I have to do this. It's not a get-to. It's not I could have done something else. This is what I need to do in order to stay consistent within my own nature. And it certainly implies it. So it, says, it doesn't say that it was by their faith, but it certainly implies it. They believed God and they repented, and that was their works. So that they got on sackcloth, they started mourning, they even said the animals don't get to eat and they don't get to have any food either. I mean, that's that's going all the way, isn't it? My poor dog, if he didn't get to eat for three days or drink any water, I don't know if he'd survive it. But they meant business. And you know what that tells me? That tells me sometimes the difference in our lives. It's not whether we're doing something, but it's like the thermostat in the room. At what temperature are you? At what level of seriousness do you have when you look at God, when you seek the face of God? And there's this kind of urgency that begins to call out to God. The more urgent we are oftentimes, I think it just spawns this thing of God says, I needed not just half-hearted, but I needed wholehearted, full surrender, nothing but, and then I can act with mercy and justice together in completion. I can't be honorable to my nature and let you walk in half-heartedly and make that my, the goal of your devotional life. Some Christians are so half-hearted with their devotion life, they don't realize that all you need is your temperature to go up. You're doing the right thing, but do it with the intensity of your heart. Because it says in the Bible, if you will seek me with all of your heart, I will be found of you. With all of your heart. Not just some, but everything within you. God never means, and I want to finish with this thought, God never means for His great love to be veiled by His decree of judgment. That is why we see His mercy for penitent hearts all the way from Genesis to Revelation. Expanded from Genesis to Revelation. You'll see it over and over again as we read our Bibles and we read through the Word of God that God, His nature... Now think about this. If we get the key piece to this, the nature, God cannot abuse His own nature. God has to live in perfect consistency within His own nature. So what we find is, people who have been abusing the favor of God in their life, they've been living in disharmony to the will of God, even in absolute rebellion and hatred for God, when they turn their hearts fully and completely to the Lord... That within the nature of God, he cannot act consistency, inconsistent with, inconsistently with it. He has to bring you to the place 
But he has to relent and give you a place of repentance. Surrender there. Isn't that remarkable? That when we just turn to the nature of who God is, we get the favor of the Lord immediately. You get the favor of God immediately. God doesn't have to change anything about himself to be consistent. He just has to change the conditions that exist with us to make sure that it works within his harmony. It has to be in the harmony of who he is. So I think oftentimes, and I want to do this, say this to your encouragement, as we pray, Lord, over somebody's life, we've been praying this today about uh, hopefully the will of God for people. And you're praying for the Lord to heal someone. You're praying for the Holy Spirit to get in their life and bring them up out of sin. You're praying for the Holy Spirit to do something very powerful in their life. And I want you to not stop praying that. I don't want you to stop praying it. But I want you to remember that sometimes it's not being answered because there's something yet inconsistent with the nature of God that He's asking for you to. And you know, you think about Jesus and it said when He was in the Garden of Gethsemane, He prayed and He sweat great blood. Now, grateful God doesn't have us do that. But I remember having a guy one time and he's like, I don't understand. He told me, he said, I don't understand why some people with intercession are bowed down with with tears and brokenness and groaning. And I thought to myself, I don't understand how you couldn't be. I don't understand how you couldn't be. Because the Spirit of God presses it in my heart in such a way and I can't help but release it in that way. I'm broken, not because I'm afraid God's not going to do His will. I'm broken because I'm urgent that nothing but the will of God can happen here. And so there's something powerful about the consistency. I think this, why is that consistent with the nature of God? Because God is immensely more broken over humanity than we are. And He's giving us, in our finite abilities, He's giving us the kind of intensity that only a human being can feel at the height that you can feel it, so you can get an idea of how He feels. Then God releases. Then you see the Holy Spirit move. And so that's the same, that's why I have such a love for the altar call, and I want to I want to give an opportunity for that this morning. I have a love for the altar call because it gives us an opportunity to seek God together with intensity. I get to have an intense moment with God while you're present. And you can too. And the Lord loves sincerity. The Holy Spirit intensifies as we seek with earnestness. But seek with earnestness. And God will move. God will move mightily. Sometimes that's the last piece to the answer for your prayer. That's the last piece. I want to um, I want to give an opportunity before we have communion. I feel like this is so important that we just have some time with the Lord. I'm going to give, uh, if you want to come to the altar, the Holy Spirit's been impressing obedience in your heart, something that the Holy Spirit has been moving on your heart and your spirit with. I want to give you an opportunity to come up here up front. And I want you to hear from me. I want you to hear this. From a tender person who knows what it feels like for God to minister at the altar, you stay as long as you feel the Holy Spirit ministering to your heart. And, and, and some of you, you're going to come and you're not going to feel something at first, but you're going to feel the Holy Spirit moving on you when you do. 
It may be a couple minutes afterwards or whatever, but the Holy Spirit's going to move because you're moving. And I don't know why the Lord does that, but he says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. Don't wait. Don't let somebody else get the blessing while you miss it. God has a blessing for us in this place. God loves sincere seeking. I've been feeling it since we started this service. And I know that the Holy Spirit wants to move in a very powerful way this morning. It's not dependent upon me. It's dependent on our hearts as we search for the Lord with all of our heart. Let's seek Him together. So I'm going to ask Isaac to turn the music on.